Our scripture reading this morning is Luke 9, verse 28. We're jumping ahead. Uh, I, I was planning on, you know, I, I announced week after week that we were swapping the Lord's Supper in our, our, our monthly luncheon. And, uh, and this week I forgot that, we, uh, that I had the Lord's Supper. And so I was preparing the sermon on uh, taking up your cross and following Jesus. And it was just too long. So, uh, so I had to. I'll push that one back to next week. And look at the Transfiguration. This is a great uh, sermon or a great uh, scripture to preach on to lead us into the Lord's table, to communing with with Christ at His table. So I thought this would be a, a good thing to do to jump ahead just a few verses, and we'll come back to the other next week, Lord willing. Well, God's word tells us in Luke nine twenty eight through thirty six. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. Well, my wife Sarah was a principal of an elementary school when we lived in North Mississippi. And on one occasion, she accompanied our school's uh, kindergartners over to Delta State University, where they were to sing for an event or a meeting that they were holding there. They were going to sing the national anthem or maybe a couple of selections uh, just to get things started there. And so they were waiting. Uh, the teachers, Sarah, the children there in the green room uh, before they were to go on. And uh, there was a few other people in the room waiting to take part in this uh, event. And then in walked uh, the state representative from our district, the North Mississippi district. And uh, he had at one time had children in the school there. So Sarah made a big deal about introducing him to the children and explain to them that he was an important person from uh, our town and, and I'm sure she explained this in kindergarten language. I can't, exp I can't imagine how you would explain a state representative to a bunch of kindergartners but she's gifted at that and I'm sure she did a great job of that. But she was uh, you know, doing it number one to teach the children but also to show honor to this, uh, to this state representative who she knew. Well, the representative uh, left after a few moments. Uh, he spoke to the children. And then there was another man in the room who also left. Uh, he, was, he had been standing there the whole time. And I think he may have even said something to the children. And Sarah was like, who is this guy and why is he talking to the children? Well, 
uh, Sarah asked someone who the other man was, and it turned out that it was Governor Phil Bryant. <laughs> so it was right after he came into office, and of course we'd been living overseas before that time, so we had no idea what the new governor looked like. She had no idea who he looked like. And because she did not recognize him uh, for who he was, that he was indeed the governor, she didn't give him the honor that she gave the other guy. Uh, funny thing it was the other guy was a Democrat, and, and Phil Bryant, of course, is a Republican, so maybe he thought she was uh, against him for that reason. Who knows what he was thinking. Uh, but anyway, she didn't give him the honor that he deserved, as she did the other uh, representative, uh, because she didn't know him, she didn't recognize him. And because she did not recognize the governor for who he was, she did not introduce him to the children. I mean, to her, he was just another person, no, no, no one important. Why would she introduce him to the children? Well, in the passage today, Peter, James, and John are getting an amazing, wonderful glimpse at the reality of who Jesus is. I mean, they have seen who Jesus is through his teaching and especially through the miracles that he did and all the, the love that he showed others. All of those things were contributing to their understanding of who Jesus is, was, is. Uh, and, and, of course, Peter... Uh, confesses Jesus. He I, rightly identifies him earlier in this chapter. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah of God. And in fact, uh, Peter and James and John, they know these things about Jesus, but man, can you imagine what they saw there with Jesus glowing and the glory of God coming out of him and seeing in a deeper way than they ever imagined who Jesus really was. And Peter responds to what he has seen and experienced there by suggesting that the three tents be built for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. It's good that we're here, and let's build some tents, and, and uh, let's stay here. Now, the word tent, the, this Greek word for tent used here, is the word it, that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate the word tabernacle. So Peter's not just saying, hey, let's pitch a couple of tents and have a camp out with you and Moses and Elijah, and we can hang around the campfire and swap stories. That's not what he means. What he is saying was, let's build three tabernacles. Now, the tabernacle, of course, in the Old Testament was the place where God dwelt with his people. The tabernacle was carried with the children of Israel as they marched through the wilderness on the Exodus and they set that tabernacle up and that's where sacrifices were made and where God met with the high priests and, uh, and the people. So what Peter was saying was he wants to set up a tabernacle or shrines for them because he has beheld the glory and his impulse immediately is to worship. And that's the right impulse. You see this glory that's beyond human understanding and explanation and your immediate response is to worship. And you see that anytime anyone encounters the, a glorious angel or a glorious appearance of Christ or even in the Revelation where 
John gets a vision of these things. He sees these glorious things, and his impulse is to worship. And that's what Peter wants to do. It was the right impulse, but wrongly executed at this point. And that's why Luke says he's not knowing what he had said. He wasn't thinking. He was just reacting. Well, they're beholding his glory, and, and it's an important time for them to, to do this, to have this experience, because they were about to uh, see some things that would make them think, well, is Jesus really the one? You remember what it says here. Um, he, he says he's talking with Moses and Elijah about his departure, which was about to happen in Jerusalem. He's talking about his, his crucifixion. And we know that when the disciples went through that whole uh, ordeal of Jesus being arrested and the trial, that they actually denied Jesus, ran away. And you remember the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after Jesus was resurrected, they say, you know, they're talking about Jesus and all that's happened and they, they're confused and they're saying, well, we thought this was the guy. We thought this was the one. We thought this was the promised Messiah. And, of course, they're telling this to Jesus, to the resurrected Christ. So, see, just imagine if they hadn't had that experience, Peter, James, and John, how their faith would have been shattered when they saw Jesus being crucified. But hopefully in the back of their minds through all this, they re re remembered, and I know they did, especially after Pentecost, that they had beheld his glory. They had seen who he really was, and they had heard the voice from the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So it was an important event for, in their lives, and they referred to it. John 1.14, you know, we just celebrated Christmas, and we read this passage numerous times. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, yes, John saw his life you know, from age 30 to 33. John saw all that Jesus did, but John beheld his glory with Peter and James like nobody else on earth ever saw. So when he says, we have seen his glory, he has seen his glory, and he proclaims it. And in his first letter, 1 John that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim it to you. See, they had seen Jesus for who he was. They understood who he was, and they wanted to share it with others. They wanted to introduce other people to this one who is so glorious. And he says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Your joy, my joy, all of our joys can be complete. You can know this one who is the Son of God. Now, if you're having trouble living out your Christianity, and everybody has trouble spots, or if you're having trouble sharing Christ with others, or trouble demonstrating the love of Christ to others, then pay attention to this passage. When you understand who Jesus is clearly, and not just 
theoretically, but when you understand who he is, that should propel you, just like it did the disciples, into a life of faith, living by faith, putting your trust in this one. If you behold his glory and the, the truth of who he is and embrace that with your life, it can't help but make a difference in the way that you live, in how you love others, and in your zeal to share Christ with others. Now, Luke is very, very interested in us answering the question, who is Jesus? He, he has people asking that question all along. Just real briefly, uh, Luke 5.21, the scribes and the Pharisees say, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Of course, Jesus has just proclaimed that someone's sins are forgiven. And again, uh, Luke 7, 19, John the Baptist asked a couple, couple of his disciples to go to Jesus and ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? Who are you? And then Luke 7, 49, when the lady comes in to, the, to Simon the Pharisee's house as Jesus reclines at the table and begins washing his feet with her tears. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Because he pronounced to the lady that her sins were forgiven. And Herod, when he heard all about Jesus, he said, he said, uh, John, I beheaded, but who is this about who I hear such things? And then, of course, in Luke 9, 18 and 20, look back a little couple of verses back, uh, when he's with the disciples, he says, who do people say that I am? And they have all kinds of answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the other prophets. And then he says to them, but you, who do you say that I am? So you see, Luke is very interested in us in having a clear understanding of who Jesus is, and it's vitally important for our faith. So what's going on here is that a, Jesus is getting a, a confirmation about his mission. He's about to, as it tells us, he's about to head to Jerusalem, and he knows what's going to happen there. He knows he's going to lay down his life for sin. And it's a daunting task. And here is a voice from heaven, the voice of the Father saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. A great bolstering. He's been spending the night in prayer, fellowshipping with God. And God is giving him affirmation. And the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they're getting this revelation of his glory before his great humiliation, before he dies. And hopefully that will come back to them, which it does, and it will fuel their faith and fuel their service to the Lord. Now, I want to look at these, the, this, I can't give you this experience, obviously, uh, and, and I can't relate it in a way that will make you feel like Peter, James, and John probably felt. But I am wanna, what I want to do is tell you some of the things that this tells us about Jesus, this transfiguration. And I want to couch it in the three offices of Christ. We see here, uh, if you look at the Reformed Confessions, all of them talk about Jesus being a prophet, priest, and king. Those are the three offices of Christ. 
I want to look at three things here. We see in this event that Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. Let's look at those in turn briefly. First of all, he's a prophet. Two people appear there with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Well, why Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham or Joseph or Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel? I mean, why these two guys? Well, they symbolically uh, represent the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. The law and the prophets. And they're talking to Jesus about his departure. They're talking to Jesus. They both are prophets, Moses and Elijah. And, of course, Moses is the one that was given the law. So they are talking about his departure. Those things that they received when they were on earth, it's all about Jesus. And they're talking to Jesus about it. What joy Moses and Elijah probably experienced at that moment as they were talking to Jesus about the things that they saw that they believed in, but now they see them coming to fruition in the person of Christ. Jesus fulfills the law. He, is, he fulfills all the, the sacrificial laws. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the one that the tabernacle points to. He's the one that the priesthood points to. And we can go through all the New Testament and see how the, the scriptures testify to this fact. He fulfills the law. And he is the ultimate prophet. He's the final word from God. That's why John uses that word. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And we beheld His glory. So, so he's a, He is a prophet. He is the ultimate prophet. The fulfillment of the Old Testament. And that's why Moses and Elijah are there with Him. And you remember, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, when Jesus is appearing to those two disciples, and they're, they're saying, we thought this was the Messiah, and we maybe we're mistaken, and Jesus gives him a, a small rebuke and says, you know, the whole Bible's about me. And, and he had the first post-resurrection Bible study on the road to Emmaus. And it tells us there, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Everything was about Jesus. And I'm sure they were blown away by what they heard from Jesus and how it all pointed to him. And what a, what a moment of going, oh, wow, oh, okay, I get it, I understand, as Jesus opened up the scriptures to them. So Jesus is the prophet. He's the word of God. And then this voice comes as the cloud surrounds Jesus and Moses and Elijah and the disciples, the cloud being like the pillar of fire and the cloud that accompanied the Israelites on the Exodus, the presence of God. That's what was going on here. The presence of God descended on that mountain and you had that voice. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. He's the ultimate prophet. He's the final word. He's the one to whom we should listen. Now you've got lots of voices in your ear in your lives. People telling you all sorts of things about how to live your life, what you need and don't need, and the path that you should take. Who are you listening to? To whom are you listening? To be grammar, better grammar. Uh, to whom are you listening? Who's informing your life? Well, Jesus is the one we should 
be hearing. He's the one to whom we should be listening because he is God. God himself, the Father, says, listen to him. Listen to him. As we think about following Jesus, who are we listening to? It's easy for us to start hearing the other voices around us, being influenced by the world around us, when we ought to live by faith in what Jesus has told us, what the Word of God says. It's one of the wonderful things that we see even in this dark time of Philip and Philip's uh, demise. And, uh, but his faith is strong. Even though his body is weak, as Paul said, you know, we, we're, you know our, our body is, is declining, but our spirit is being renewed day by day. And you see that. He's living by faith. He's putting his trust in, in God's promises. And they're living in light of those things. They hear God's word, and they say, yes, this looks bad, but God makes all things to work for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Just to give one example. They're believing that. They're trusting that. They're living in light of that. That's making, that makes a difference in how they respond in this very difficult situation. Are you a hearer of the word only, or are you a hearer and a doer of the word? A doer of the word is not just somebody that does good things, that's true, but a doer of the word is someone who takes the word of God and lives their lives in response to that, in light of that, as, as that's true. That's the prophet. Jesus is our prophet. He's also our priest. When Moses and Elijah are talking to him, they're talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, verse 31. Now that word departure there is an odd word, sort of. It's not the word that would occur naturally in a sentence that says we're talking about a departure. The word there is actually exodus. They were talking to Jesus about his exodus. Now that's certainly... Uh, not a mistake on Luke's part. He's trying to communicate something. Of course, they were communicating something in this, in this whole event. When the children of Israel went on the Exodus, they were being freed, released from their bondage, their slavery in Egypt. The Exodus delivered the people of God from bondage in Egypt. The exodus of Jesus that is being discussed between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, that exodus, his exodus, his death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession for us, delivers his people from their bondage to sin, a much greater bondage than bondage, earthly bondage to slavery. Christ represents us. He's the mediator. We read it earlier in the confession. He's the mediator between God and man. And that's what a priest did. They stood between God and man and represent the people. They brought the sacrifices for them. Christ brings the sacrifice himself. And the, when Jesus died, the curtain was torn in two in the Holy of Holies so that we have access now into the very Holy of Holies, into the presence of God through what Jesus did. Hebrews 4, since then we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find great grace to help in time of need. You may not want to admit it, but you need help. You need a mediator. You need someone to, to mediate between you and God. You're naturally at enmity with God. How are you going to deal with that when your time on earth is through? You need a mediator. You need someone to stand in the gap. And there's only one person that can do that, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior. He's the only priest. He is the only one who offers him, offered himself up to satisfy divine justice. He's the only one who can reconcile us to God, and he's the one who makes continual intercession for us. Are you looking to yourself to be that one that makes you acceptable to God? Are you looking at your own works? Are you looking at your own sacrifices for the Lord? Well, that's going to fall short. Christ is the only one who is the priest. And you've got to depend on him or you're going to be lost. Well, finally, we see here that Jesus is the king. And that's just from the words that the Father says. This is my son, the royal son, the chosen one, the Messiah, the one set apart to be the king of kings and lord of lords. This is Jesus. He's the one that we should bow the knee to. He's the one to whom we owe our faith and fidelity. He is the one we are to serve. We are part of his kingdom if we're Christians. And we owe everything to him. We can't just decide to go our own way. That would be uh, an affront to our king. We should bow the knee to him. He is the glorious one. We should submit to him in all things. We should say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm at your disposal. I am your servant. Uh, I am here to do whatever you would have me to do. You're the king. You call the shots. You make the rules. You, you are the one who knows best. That's what it means to have Jesus as king. And the Father here is revealing that Jesus is royalty, the royal one, the royal king. Well, as I mentioned before, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, at least uh, John and Peter both wrote about their experience here on the mountain. And Peter, if you want to flip over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter refers to this experience, and I think it's a good way to close out this morning. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 19, where Peter confirms, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You, you don't have it in and of yourself. It comes from him. And it's through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. We don't become divine. We are united to Christ. We're united to him. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. 
And what he's saying is, remember what Christ has done for you. And, and how he, in his glorious person, he has made it possible for you to be saved. To save you from sin. So seek to remain out of sin. Seek to do those good things that are just mentioned here. He goes on. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's what happens to us sometimes. We become ineffective and unfruitful because we forget. We forget about who the Lord Jesus Christ really is and who we're serving and who is our Savior, our prophet, our priest, our king. Verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it, that it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So Peter is going to say, he, he is saying to them, I am never going to stop telling you about Jesus. I'm never going to stop telling you about Jesus. I've, I've seen him. And he goes on to say, I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. And here it is. For we, do not, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts." That experience had made such an impression upon Peter that his whole life was about serving the Lord by serving his church and by sharing the good news of Jesus with others. It had become so impressed upon him by that wonderful experience. Now, we may not have a mountaintop experience like that, but we have God's word, and we know the truth of it. Let us cling to those truths and let it make a difference in the way that we live, in the way that we love, in the way that we share Christ with others. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have given it to us. We pray, Lord, that somehow or another we would have a sense of, of your majesty and glory, like Peter, James, and John did, and that that might fuel us to be more serious about submitting to you as our prophet, priest, and king. Forgive us, Lord, for our many sins. Forgive us for our coldness. Forgive us for our worldliness, our blindness and nearsightedness. Give us eyes to see and, and a heart to receive your truth, your word this morning. And we pray you, you would bless us as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.